This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Wednesday, November 21st, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was a debate For a Senate seat in Mississippi last night, what happened was on election day, neither candidate got above 50% of the vote. So there is a runoff, the Republican, Cindy Hyde-Smith, the Democrat, Mike Espy. In this debate, there was no audience, there was no outside press, and this gives rise to the famous Zen cone. If a tree makes a racially insensitive remark in the forest, would it become a talking point? And yes, yes, it happened. The Republican, Cindy Hyde-Smith, did say at some point that she was excited to get the backing of one supporter, so excited that she would attend a public hanging if that guy had invited her. My go-to, by the way, for a thing I wouldn't do to demonstrate how excited I am is, hell, I'd go to a pig's bris if it was with you, Lurleen. So in her answer, Hyde Smith explained that she meant no offense and that she once even said that she would stick her arm inside a circle saw for a feller, thereby explaining how idiomatic hyperbole works. But specifically in her answer, she did this thing where she turned it around and took a little bit of umbrage that anyone could criticize her choice of words in a state which, of course, had a horrible history of public lynchings. Here's precisely how she explained it. That's the type of politics Mississippians are sick and tired of. Wait, you know, wasn't there something odd about how she said that? Here, I'll play her saying that same word again. We certainly need to leave at a local district and let Mississippians decide upon. Mississippians? And listen to how she says the state's name in general. Mississippi cannot afford that, and I would never support anything like that. The frontrunner, in the race to represent Mississippi in the Senate, cannot say Mississippi. Although maybe there are other words she can't say. Maybe this was her offense. I didn't say I'd go to a public hanging. I'd say a public hugging. A hugging. I, I want to hug you. Now, it was clear that the press, or at least the moderators of the debate, were in a bad position to criticize Hyde Smith's pronunciation. Uh, listen to how a moderator asks her a question. You have released a statement in which you say that any attempt to turn it into a negative connotation is ridiculous. What is the positive connotation? I hasten in to offer this observation, but that bit of communication caused me some consternation. Mike Espy, the Democrat, was accused of taking $750,000 from the dictator of the Ivory Coast and a consultant fee, which he did, but he wants you to know he forewent the last payment. So this was the heretofore unexplored. Sure, I took $750,000, but it wasn't a million dollars defense. SB describes his due diligence. I found out later that this guy, the president, was a really bad guy. I resigned the contract and uh, I rescinded the last uh, fee that I was due. And then I went to the Central Intelligence Agency. And I had learned certain things and reported them. So it's all in your that time report. is concluded. Thank you. Let's go on with our next question. Now, At the end there, did you see how they were strictly enforcing the 30-second rule for rebuttals? So, 
A bit later, the strict enforcement of the rule enabled Mike Espy to pull a debate move I literally have never seen before. And if you've been listening to this show, you know that I've watched about 50 debates this cycle. So flustered, Rick Perry-like at being unable to conjure the second of two examples he promised the audience, he does this. Number one, if you're on the no-fly list, if you can't even get on a plane, then you probably shouldn't own a gun without careful vetting. Uh, and the second way uh, is that um, is, is, uh, we need more vetting for that. And, and uh, she's 30 seconds. He called time on himself. It's a bold move. It's the kind of quick thinking to cover up slow thinking Mississippians could use in the Senate. The runoff for this seat will be held on Tuesday. The politics of Mississippi favor Hyde Smith. The state voted in the presidential election, roughly 60% Republican, 40% Democrat. The state is also, you might find it fascinating to learn, 60% white and 40% African-American. Cindy Hyde-Smith seems to have the edge in the runoff for a couple reasons. She is a white Republican and, oh wait, 30 seconds are up. On the show today, I give you a Thanksgiving gift, permission to decry the president for really good reasons, and also for okay reasons, and even for just fine reasons, but that is my present to you for the holiday. But first, Thanksgiving means the careful ingestion of portion-controlled nutrients designed to both honor our traditions and provide the body enough fuel to perform physical feats. Although, from what I understand, sometimes the eating does go on a bit beyond the necessary. And sometimes the burning of calories doesn't match the ingestion of calories. And then we've got a situation. Or maybe we don't. Maybe everything that I think about obesity is wrong. Or maybe, maybe, hear me out here, the backlash to the potato mash is some bullshit. Maria Konnikova is here to load our plates with knowledge. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Recently in the Huffington Post, or as I call it, the Huffington Post, there was an article headlined, Everything You Know About Obesity is Wrong. Now, I went in having these as my priors, as they say, regarding obesity. In general, I think that having a higher than lower BMI correlates to some negative outcomes in terms of cardiovascular health, diabetes. I also think that uh, so-called belly fat might be worse than other kinds. This is what I thought I knew about obesity. And it turns out after reading this article in the Huffington Post, none of that's wrong. So what is it that we thought we knew about obesity that's wrong? Is obesity bad? I think what I said is true. I can't figure this out, so I'm going to be joined by Maria Konnikova. She comes by every few weeks to play Is That Bullshit? She's also the author of The Biggest Bluff, forthcoming from Penguin Press. Hello. Hello, Maria. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Well, so... 
Does obese even have a meaning? Is it a useful category? I don't mean does someone describes it as this percent overweight, but if there is such a thing as being too fat, let's, right. let's not mince words, is that a useful thing to think about, that someone can be too fat? Yeah, so that's, I think, a really interesting question that a lot of researchers are asking. Weight isn't health, and health isn't weight. So we can't use weight as a proxy for health, which I think a lot of people may very well do because weight is something that's very easy to see. So a lot of markers of health are internal. So I can't tell if you're healthy or not healthy um, by looking at you always. You can weigh more and still be perfectly healthy, and you can weigh less and be unhealthy. And we can look at it historically and see, you know, where did this even come from? Because I was actually curious, you know, has this been a medical concept for a long time or not? Um, yeah. I had no idea. Um, and so I um, read a little bit about the history of obesity. That's good. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Um, and by the times of Hippocrates, it was um, already acknowledged that it could come with problems. So in the Hippocratic Corpus, which is kind of the 60 or so medical books that were left by Hippocrates and his crew, it's already the case that being overweight is associated with things like fatigue. Sure. Um, wow. Shortness of breath. <laughs> that guy walking up the Acropolis stairs broke into a sweat. Right. Unlike so, this guy. So it wasn't stigmatized. It wasn't like, oh, oh no, we need to do something about these overweight people. They were concerned that there might be some sort of health issues. Yes. And so they wrote about that. The word obesity wasn't even used until the 17th century. I'm looking. Obese. Obesius, Latin, have eaten until fat, mid-17th century. <laughs> there have you go. eaten until fat. There you go. But we do have, before we had the term obesity, doctors were starting to think about whether or not there's an association between weight and health. Originally, it was thought to be positive because mm -hmm. if you had weight, you wouldn't die because you wouldn't starve to death. Yes. So by the 17th century, we get the word obese. And then in the 18th and 19th century... It's the first time that it's actually linked as potentially causal to bad health. So um, we suddenly have gout appearing, making an appearance. Really? In That's the when it started? No, gout existed long yeah, before. But, but suddenly people yeah. make make the appearance of gout with being overweight. Yeah. That these two Normally things it was might just be. a sign of you're the king. Yes, you exactly. Want to say exactly. You're wealthy. Yeah. Exactly. Way to go. Yeah. Breathing, fatigue, the same yeah. things we're seeing, plus gout. And in... The 1892 book, which became pretty famous in medicine, Principles and Practice of Medicine by wow. William Osler. With that title like that, how could it not become yes. famous forever? <laughs> this was the first time that we actually see obesity put in a negative light in a medical textbook. Interesting. So he writes, he says that obesity is attributed to, quote, overeating, a vice which is more prevalent than and only a little behind over drinking and its disastrous effects. Huh. So this is the first time that we actually start seeing people put a judgment on weight, not just like this is this is medical, but right. but this is a vice. Right. Well, we didn't have the knowledge uh, as a medical practitioner at the time. He didn't have the knowledge that words cause injury. Yes, so he, he did would, not. Right, he right. did not. So in the in the early 20th century, we finally see some epidemiological stuff where it's actually starting to be linked to increased mortality. So this is kind of the evolution, and then we suddenly start having people saying, uh-oh, maybe there are problems with being overweight. But here was one of my problems um, with this article that's saying everything that we thought is wrong, mm -hmm. um, because one of the things he's saying is weight is not health. 
1947, this French guy, Jean Vague, uh, at first I thought he was English and his last name was Vague, and I was like, cool. And then I <laughs> yeah. realized that he was French. That is um, kind of cool, too. Though. That is kind yeah. of cool, too. Yeah. He actually, this is 1947, says, actually, wait, 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 not all weight is created equal. And he's the first one who actually starts saying we should look at where the weight is on the body. Cool. And some comes with bad health effects and others is just, as he said, in French. So it didn't sound quite as bad or maybe it sounded much worse. Unsightly. Unsightly. <laughs> yes, but not, but not actually causing any health problems. Or what is French for junk in the trunk? I'm going to look this up <laughs> as we talk. So he, so he distinguished between Android obesity, which was upper body obesity. Android? Android, yes. Yeah. And, and let me gynecoid. Guess, iPod. Okay. No. Yeah. Gynecoid obesity or uh-huh. lower body. Uh-huh. He said that the upper body, which is what you were talking about with kind of belly fat and all of that, that's linked to metabolic and cardiovascular disease, but gynecoid is not. And so now it gets us to kind of to this question of, okay, what do we even need to look at when we're talking about weight? And is there such a thing as healthy obesity? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this relatively new concept that stems back to 1947 called metabolically healthy obesity. So the original, the original idea was that, okay, when you have a certain BMI, and we're, we're just going to acknowledge that there are problems with every single one of these measurements, um, a certain percentage body fat, um, then all of a sudden you have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, you have a higher risk of dying at a younger age, higher risks of type 2 diabetes, higher risk of stroke, higher risk of a lot of those types of things and of certain types of cancers. But now what some people are saying is, okay, no, actually it's not weight. There are metabolically healthy obese uh-huh. individuals and metabolically unhealthy obese individuals. So So it's not the weight, it's your metabolism. And for some bodies, you might be obese by every single criterion, and yet your metabolism is still healthy. And so one would think your risk for all of these things would be normal, whereas someone could be skinny and actually be metabolically unhealthy. That seemed, the second part of that it seems obvious. Now, the first part, yep. I wonder, this must only exist at the lower ends of the definition of obesity. So, so in the last five years, that's when research on this has really kind yep. of picked up. It, it exists at every point in obesity. But it seems that it's not something that's actually long-term true. Yeah. So... I, I was able to find a few different meta-analyses that looked at the available data, and it looks like people who are metabolically healthy, which means that they don't have uh, dyslipidemia, which is high cholesterol or lipids, um, especially triglycerides, um, abnormal glucose metabolism, and systematic inflammation. Those are the three markers of metabolically unhealthy. So if you don't have any of those, you would fit into metabolically healthy. So your insulin resistance would be normal, no hypertension. So you would seem like someone who has a much lower weight. Yeah. But people aren't sure exactly what percentage of people who are obese fall into this category. It seems the average seems to be about 30, but I've seen estimates as low as just 10 Mm -hmm. and as high as 50, Mm -hmm. which is obviously all over the place. And I think this goes back to no one knows how we're measuring obesity and no one knows how we're measuring metabolic health and all of these things because of, because it's so tough to measure all of this. It's so far, so tough to do any 
good studies on this. Right, right. And, we, and they were done in the last five years. And the question I would have is, okay, right now they're metabolically healthy. In so, five years, do they have more heart attacks than the population Well, large? so so it does seem to be the case that when you look at this longitudinally over a period of nine years, mm-hmm. um, there's no longer such a thing as metabolically healthy because your risk factors go up. Mm-hmm. It actually seems like two things might happen. One, metabolically healthy might become metabolically unhealthy. Right. But the second, you might still seem metabolically healthy, but all of a sudden the risk factors are there. People, so this in other is, words, this person has this uh, perfectly fine insulin processing and doesn't show inflammation, doesn't have high insulin retention, doesn't have influent, insulin resistance, but mm-hmm. then still has a heart attack. Yep. Yeah. So basically everything does still seem to go up over time. Yeah. And this is a debate that's happening right now. There's no answer. There are people on both sides of this. Here's, I think, here's the crucial thing why people are trying to say, no, no, it's healthy. You might still be eating healthy and doing all these right things because here we come to the second part of it, which is that many times, oftentimes, potentially these days, even a majority of the time, it's not the individual's fault. Yeah. But that's a different issue, right? Whether or not this is unhealthy and will lead to an increased risk of certain types of diseases, things that just come with increased weight, period. Um, th- these are things that we know that even it doesn't matter what your metabolism are like. If you weigh more, yeah. your risk for sleep apnea goes up. Yeah. If you weigh more, your chance of osteoarthritis, especially in the knees and hips, goes up. That's just a function of weight. So you have all of these risks that come with that. Regardless of whether it's your fault or not, you might be very healthy. You might be eating. You might be di- you know you might be doing everything right, and genetically you're predisposed to this. Yeah. Or there are certain other factors that make this more likely. People conflate those two, right? They start thinking that well, I know that it's not their fault, so therefore I'm going to say that they're all healthy. Yeah. Or that I know that I've tried to diet; it hasn't worked for me. Therefore. It doesn't matter how much I weigh. Right. Or and, that there's such disproportionate cruelty on behalf yeah. of someone who wants to cast aspersions to someone who's yeah. obese that there should be a corrective. Right. No one should be cruel or judge people harshly because of how they look. And you're fooling yourself if you think that it's so correlative how a person looks. If you're saying to yourself, oh, that's unhealthy yep. um, for reasons purely rooted in science. Yep. It's good to complicate the science. What I did agree with in this article, and I think is very much the case, is that a lot of these issues are caused by society and by the fact that we don't understand nutrition. So, exhibit A, people have become overweight and their metabolism has been screwed up. I was about to say fucked up, but I decided to be a little bit milder, but really fucked up because for decades, nutritionists have been saying low-fat diet, fat-free, you know, sugar substitutes, use this instead. Because a calorie is a calorie. That is bullshit. That's bullshit. And it's a horrible myth that has screwed up people's metabolisms big time because it ends up that a calorie is not a calorie. There's really interesting work being done um, by this woman, Dana Small, at Yale, where she actually looks at these types of things and realizes that you can't fool the brain. So what we end up doing is creating all sorts of health problems, making it impossible for us to lose weight, potentially starting gaining weight, because we've been following both some nutritionists and also a lot of industry people who've said, oh, you know, a calorie is a calorie, and look, this diet drink has zero calories, so yeah. drink away. Basically, big snack wells has Exactly, us, yeah. exactly. And that's, that's a problem of 
you know, uh uh-oh, like we've just listened to what they've said and they were wrong and they've screwed up our metabolism. It's really difficult for your metabolism to recover from, from those types of things. It's a big problem and that has nothing to do with willpower, quite the opposite. You might be trying to do the correct thing, but because nutrition science is so bad and has been saying so many wrong things, following nutrition science is going to lead you astray a lot of the times. If you're just looking at kind of the popular, this is what I'm supposed to yeah, do now. Or, the, or whatever food pyramid the government yep. is pushing at you. Yep, yeah. exactly. And in fact, um, the Lancet Obesity Series published its recommendation and it concluded, and this is a quote, the obesity epidemic will not be reversed without government leadership. So that kind of acknowledges that a lot of this has to do with supra forces as opposed to kind of individuals who are making bad decisions or who have self-control issues. That's not the case at all. Hmm. We've got shitty food that costs much less yeah. than good food costs. Yeah. Sometimes we don't know that it's shitty food because we've been told that it's actually good food. That's right. Hormones in the environment. That seems to matter. And we have to work a lot, so we're sitting a lot. We're not sleeping enough. All of these things contribute to weight gain. All right. So I think this is how I'm going to frame it. Obesity is not really as bad for bodies as we've been led to believe. Um, I think that that's bullshit because I do think obesity is pretty bad for bodies. And there's a lot of consensus around the fact that obesity and let's let's say that it is bullshit to have these strict definitions that we need to figure out a way to define obesity yes and a way to define metabolic health that the community agrees on obesity can be defined incorrectly and as bad can be defined incorrectly but if you have two good definitions of those things if you have good definitions of obesity um, and good definitions of metabolic health i think that It is not bullshit that those things are bad for your health um, because we do have a lot of evidence, a lot of longitudinal studies that show that um, obesity, assume we define it correctly, um, is linked to cardiovascular health, Mm -hmm. is linked to diabetes, is linked to certain types of cancers, um, is linked to sleep apnea, is linked to arthritis, is linked to a lot of conditions that you would rather not have. Yes. Um, so I think that that is absolutely not bullshit. And the bullshit parts of those are that we don't have good definitions, good measures of obesity, um, and we don't always have agreed upon definitions of metabolic health. Well, thank you, Maria Konnikova. And we should disclose that this segment has been underwritten by Fun Dip and Cinnabon. Yes, um, and I'm about to have a Cinnabon right now, and yeah. it's going to be delicious. Have the Cinnabon with extra frosting at many airports near you. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game and The Biggest Bluff. It's quite a bluff. You'll want to read about that. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. The other day on Fox News, grumpy grandpa slash man who later generations will not believe was once considered a sober, respective voice on financial issues, Lou Dobbs, gave us his jurisprudential strategy. Isn't there a time where you have to just tell a district court judge to go to hell? Because (laughs) I I mean, the idea that you have to follow the dicta of a district court judge and create rules and can't run the White House in the way that it has been run. 
uh, since time uh, immemorial. Speaking of dicta, duh, you dick. Even if the judge somehow allows Jim Acosta to continue on his job, which is also, we should note, your job, and a job your employer said should continue to be Jim Acosta's job, even if a judge does something outrageous like that, we do have to live with it, don't we? Or I guess, I don't know, fix bayonets, overthrow the government over the Acosta ruling, and then the Tree of Liberty will not only be watered with the blood of the patriots, but the manure of Fox legal analyst Greg Jarrett, who was on set and was free to inform us of his interpretation of freedom of the press. There's no freedom of the press to question the president. It's a privilege. Actually, there is. It's an amendment, a pretty high up one, too. But as idiotic as these opinions are, right underneath them was this question. Am I falling into a trap? Trump's trap. Fox's trap. By even spending a minute on this fight that Trump desperately wants to have. Politico wrote an article headlined, It's a trap! Reporters struggle to respond to White House press pass fight. The president does seem to be setting a lower bar, a lower act bar, it's a trap. And in terms of stances and conduct every day. And it is pretty clear that they want us to trip over that low bar. And by us, I mean you, me, the press, everyone. This idea, not taking the bait, keeping an eye on the prize, not taking a millstone for a pledge, never making the first or third out at third, not trusting a Sicilian when death is on the line. This idea of not being sucked into an endless string of expressions, each more vital than the last. This is important, nay, essential to the defense against the dark arts of the Trump administration. So the thinking goes. So after talking about if this was a trap to get your ire up about the Jim Acosta fight, a favorite podcast of mine, the Press Box on the Ringer Network, host Brian Curtis gave voice to this challenge. In this specific case, he was talking about Jim Acosta, but then he generalizes it out to focus on the trap that Trump keeps wanting to set. If we just all stand on our hind legs for Jim Acosta, we're just, all we're doing is, you know, adding more gasoline to the fire that Trump has just lit and that we have to figure out a way to do it. And and look, this is, I think, not just in the press relations part, but in the everything part, the maybe singular quandary of the media covering Trump is, you know, how much when you, when you go in on this stuff, are you just, you know, doing exactly what he wants you to do? It is the quandary, and it's been my quandary. I'm sure you can find moments on the gist where I say, don't fall for this or look at that or that's not the important thing. But now that I've thought about it a little more and with some more evidence in, I have a different answer to this conundrum, the question of what to focus on. And here's the answer. Focus on all of it, all of it. You know why? Because there's so little evidence that Trump's techniques are working. His distraction techniques, his fear-mongering, his quote-unquote playing to the base tautology. I think that none of it is working, and we're free to get upset at all the crazy crap he does and not beat ourselves up over it. Because so far, I do think to some extent we've internalized that Trump must be doing something right just because of that one big fact, he won the election. And we might know that it's not totally true that the experts said he would lose. We might know that the experts really said he'd lose the popular vote by three, and he really just lost the popular vote by two. But it seems like a decent enough argument. I don't know, maybe Trump knows something. He must be smarter than we give him credit for. 
But the fact is, politics just have a really small sample size. And while he won the election based on those weird electoral college rules, there seems to be no good evidence that he has good political instincts, that his distraction techniques or any techniques are working. It seems like what he's really done is to make a series of mistakes that have made him less and less popular, that have pushed him further away from a positive agenda, that have thwarted his ambition and frustrated his goals. Yes, you could argue what about the EPA? What about shaping the court? But here's the thing. All he had to do to name two conservative justices to the Supreme Court is not die or get impeached. Anyone who is elected to that job, as long as they're in that job, will get to name those justices. And if his want is to gut environmental regulations as it is, you appoint an environmental regulator who hates the environment, and then he does the job for you. He hasn't really achieved anything, and I see no evidence that his theory of politics or his technique about how to either confuse us or get his agenda passed works at all. Given all this, I say, let us no longer be afraid to make a misstep and to say that this was an outrageous injustice at 2 p.m. just because there was an unconscionable blunder at 3 p.m. and then a brain-melting violation at 5.30 p.m. We could get equally outraged or even more outraged at one and less outraged at another. It's okay to react with horror at every horrible thing he does. And you know what? You no longer have to second-guess yourself that your horror or their horror or someone else's horror is better directed elsewhere. And you know what? How about the stuff he does that's laughably stupid? I say it's okay to laugh at it. Just because we're laughing at Trump doesn't mean that laughter fails to undermine him. The other day, he actually said that his preferred method of controlling forest fires is raking, raking the forest. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to wonder, as I did in private, as I will now do in public, to wonder if he also has a technique to combat melting glaciers which is using air conditioners. Rake the forest, air condition the glaciers. If you want the glaciers, just crank up the AC. Those glaciers ain't going anywhere. I've even come to think that the jokes about the tiny, tiny hands aren't actually a threat to our attention on the real issues. Yeah, they're just a hack joke, but you know what? People with hack senses of humor need a reason to mock Trump too. Look, you may disagree. Maybe you say, you know what? The guy's a genius. The guy understands that we live in a fast twitch, short attention span age. All right, then why is your technique to combat this reality, that to combat his understanding of the reality with the exact opposite of this reality? You know, Trump understands that we can't pay attention. So our prescription is we got to pay a lot of attention. I don't think that would work. I mean, Trump might think, that he needs to create more and more scandals and that will overwhelm our threat matrix. What's the evidence? That's true. What's the evidence? It just won't make his personal approval rating plummet. It sure has so far. Also, let's say we do obsess on the quote unquote important stuff. And we say, forget the hands. We got to talk about the trade wars. We got to talk about uh, threatening the judiciary. What's, what's our focus really do? We have good professional people inside the government who will save us from him. So far as a stress test, the Trump example seems to demonstrate that our country is quite resilient. We're standing up to the stress. Your care and your worry, you know, unless you're in, John Roberts doesn't seem to amount to much. Take, for example, the Mueller probe. We can all agree that's the important stuff. Election chicanery. How much has our understanding or how much is our consternation or how much is our saying 
Don't focus on that. Focus on Mueller. How much has that actually affected Mueller? It seems like Mueller is going along with his probe, and he doesn't need our care and consternation and understanding and for us to perform outrage triage. Mueller's an ex-Marine who headed the FBI. He's not Tinkerbell. He does not rely on us believing in him or clapping our hands louder, louder for Mueller to do his job. Sure, if our patience with Mueller were to erode, that would be trouble, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like we're just inherently interested in Mueller and we'll always think that the stuff that he's onto or the people he indicts are important. And that's fine. America wants to know what Mueller will have to say. And it doesn't matter how many Finnish Sylvan protocols the president endorses, or no matter how much he alleges that people change costumes to commit voter frauds, or his backhanded insult at a combat veteran who could have caught Osama a little sooner. That stuff doesn't matter. That doesn't get in the way of Mueller. It doesn't matter if you tell yourself, let us not get distracted with the small stuff. It's the big stuff because Mueller's in charge of the big stuff. And you know what else? Maybe once in a while, because of this freedom to get outraged at everything, we could even once in a while recognize that some things aren't that outrageous. Some things are just politics. Some things are neutral, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, good points, bad points, or this prison reform thing. Maybe that's a good thing. I mean, look, can we all agree those turkeys deserve pardoning? It's not selling out the resistance or giving him a free pass if we allow ourselves to be horrified by something that's slight or to even not be offended by the rare, ever so rare, benign act of the Trump administration. So that is the good news. We can allow ourselves to be outraged by everything outrageous the president does. And now the really good news. We will have many, 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 many opportunities to give in to this newfound freedom. It is indeed a privilege. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader are going to celebrate Turkey Day by the usual posting of a picture of President Erdogan and consuming Adana kebab. Wait, what Turkey Day were you talking about? TJ Raphael, Slate Senior Producer. Her favorite side dish is cranberry sauce. Her favorite side arm is a beretta. Her favorite side armor is Brad Ziegler. And her favorite side effect is dry mouth and drowsiness. The gist, we pardoned the turkey, but those turkeys still can't vote in Kentucky. Checks election status of Mitch McConnell. Oh, wait, maybe they can. Oomperu, dapperu, dupperu. That's turkey related. And thanks for listening.